everybody. Welcome to Gilbert Church. Really good to have you with us today. I want to welcome those of you at our campuses. I was out at Blaine last weekend, and it was fantastic. I'm sure that all of our campuses were. also want to welcome those of you who are watching online right now. A few months ago, I ran into a couple that was moving to Connecticut, and they were so bummed about leaving our church, but they said, we're going to watch every weekend online. And we even got our family members in East Lansing, Michigan to start watching every week online as well. So welcome to those of you in Connecticut, East Lansing, Michigan, all throughout the world tuning in with us today. We are in the fifth week of a series called Shatterproof, which is based on a letter in the New Testament called 2 Corinthians. And Paul, the author of 2 Corinthians, at one point, he says, I was broken but not crushed. I was persecuted, but I wasn't forsaken. I got knocked down a few times, but I was able to get back up and keep going. Paul was shatterproof. And it's been our hope that through this series and by the power of God, you would become shatterproof to the troubles in your life as well. But that's difficult to do when you have a thought life that is out of control. I've told this story a few years ago, but I was, many years ago, I was getting ready to speak at our six o'clock service And so I was eating some yogurt. In all the busyness of getting ready to speak, I had forgotten to eat anything. And I didn't want to go out and faint or something like that. And so I was wolfing down some yogurt while I was multitasking. Something that all men are really good at, right? I mean, just we're sort of known for that. And so while I was eating the yogurt, I was putting my microphone on at the same time. But when I got done putting on the microphone, I realized that I had spilled. Not on my shirt. Not on my shoes, but on a very conspicuous area of my pants. This was a code red. I went running into the bathroom and I wetted down a paper towel and began to scrape the yogurt off, but in my panic, I had put too much water onto the paper towel. So I got the yogurt off, but now I had a new problem. Huge wet spot. And I mean huge This is every public speaker's nightmare. You do not want to go out in front of a few thousand people and go, hey everybody, welcome to Eaglebrook Church, with a huge wet spot on your crotch. (laughs) It's not a good impression for a first time attender. It's really not a good impression for any tender for that matter. And so I thought to myself, you know, I'm going to have to go out there and I'm going to have to try to explain to these people what happened and convince them. So I'm going to have to go out and say, you know, I was eating yogurt, and I spilled it, and then I put too much water on the towel, and I swear I didn't wet my pants. And as I'm having all of these thoughts, my thought life began to spiral even more out of control. I thought, oh, you're so dumb. And you do stuff like this all the time. And then I thought, you know, people have a hard enough time listening to any message, but they're not going to hear a thing you say for the first 10 minutes or so. I even started to question if God really loved me or not. Just then, I remember that our senior pastor, Bob Merritt, has a space heater underneath one of his desks in the back. And so with two minutes to go before I had to go out to speak, I went and put this space heater on full blast and stuck it right up to my pants. (laughs) With 30 seconds to go, the spot was gone. And so I went running out, sweating from this heater, but thankfully, spot free. Isn't it amazing how fast toxic thoughts can begin to fill your mind? I mean, spilling yogurt really isn't that big of a deal, but all of a sudden, I'm questioning if God loves me and if I'm smarter than a fifth grader. In fact, years ago, I was reading a quote from a pastor in England named Martin Lloyd-Jones, and it really stuck with me. I want to read this quote to you. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, Do you realize 
that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you listen to yourself instead of preach to yourself. Let me try to unpack this for you because it's a lot to take in at first blush. He says, do you realize that most of your unhappiness, let me ask you, what has you unhappy these days? For some of you, you'd say, it's my job. You know, I love the weekends, I love my time off, but my job, it really makes me unhappy. Others of you would say, you know, thinking about school starting in a couple weeks, just that thought makes me kind of unhappy. Some of you would say, it's my marriage. I mean, if I'm honest, I would say my marriage or another relationship in my life, that's the reason I'm unhappy. Martin Lloyd-Jones makes the fairly provocative statement that most of your unhappiness in life is not due to your situation or circumstances. In other words, it's actually not the job, the marriage, or the other relationship that has you unhappy. Instead, he says this, he says, do you realize, can we go back to that last one? Do you realize that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you listen to yourself instead of preach to yourself? Let me give you a couple of examples of what he means by this so you can see that we're not just making it up. The first one's going to be from the Bible so you can see it's actually a biblical basis. In Psalm 42, David says this. He writes, why am I discouraged? Why so sad? Question, who's David speaking to here? Well, if you look at the context of Psalm 42, you realize that David is speaking to himself. He's asking himself, why are you so discouraged right now? But then look at what David says next. He says, put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him. David very easily could have listened to himself. He could have listened to himself say things like, oh, I'm so discouraged. My life stinks. This kind of thing always happens to me. But instead, here he is preaching to himself. And he's going, David, come on, put your hope in God. Praise him no matter what your circumstances are. He's not listening to himself. He's preaching to himself. Here's another example for you. If you come to church with your spouse or with a roommate, you'll probably be able to relate a little bit to this. But when a married couple is getting ready to come to church, there's an interesting dynamic that usually takes place. One of you is usually sitting out in the car going, what are you doing in there? Come on, I've been sitting out here for five minutes. Come on, we're, we're gonna be late. I wonder what the first song's gonna be. Oh, wait, I never get to see the first song because we're always late to church, right? <laughs> Meanwhile, the other spouse is in the house brushing out the kid's hair, trying to make sure their faces are clean and they have shoes on, going, maybe if you'd get out of the car and come in and help me, we could actually get to church on time. This is my wife and I to a T. I will let you guess which one of us is which. But as we're driving to church, then you get stuck behind somebody who's driving five miles an hour below the speed limit. So you're like, I'm gonna be a little more late. And then you get into our parking lots and to try to save some time, you try to cut through the cones. Parking volunteers will not let you do that, will they? And so finally you get into church and you go, I just need a coffee. Give me some caffeine. But the coffee line is like 10 or 15 people deep. Now, if I could get into your mind in that moment and I could see your thought life, what would I see? See something like this. She always makes me late. We're late for everything. You know who else is always late? Fred from accounting. 
I mean, every time I call a meeting, that guy waltzes in like 15 minutes late like he owns the place. Drives me nuts. You know what else drives me nuts? Construction in Minnesota. Why can't they just do one road at a time? Punch it out and move on. Why are they doing them all at once? And then you come, yeah. All the planning and commissioning people are like, why did I come to church today? Uh, but then you get into the third worship song and it's like, I love you, Lord. Now, what's happening there? You have a thought life that is spiraling out of control. You are listening to yourself instead of preaching to yourself. Counselors call this negative interpretation, and it's why a lot of marriages struggle. Because one or both spouses begins to interpret the, everything the other one does through a negative lens. So it's not just that they forgot to put their dishes away. They're lazy and don't care about other people. It's not just that she forgot to ask you about your day. That was struck chord with somebody over here. They're like, that's my, talking to me? It's not just that he forgot to ask you about your day. He doesn't love you or care about you. It's not just that she's tired and wants to go to bed early. She doesn't desire you. Negative interpretation. And here's why I agree with Martin Lloyd-Jones when he says that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you listen to yourself instead of preach to yourself. Because here's what I believe is true. No matter your circumstances or situation, your mind has the power of interpretation. You can choose to interpret something negatively or positively. You can choose to be grateful or entitled, jealous or content, you can choose to wallow in self-doubt or you can believe that nothing is impossible with God. Your mind has the power of interpretation. But that's the battle that we all face. It's the war that wages in your mind and in my mind, which brings us to the verse I want to show you today from 2 Corinthians chapter 10. So we're going to pick things up in our Shatterproof series. Paul writes this, he says, We are human, but we don't wage war with human plans and methods. We use God's mighty weapons. Now, what does he mean by all this? Well, he starts out by saying we're human. So I'm, I'm tracking with him there. That's a duh statement. We're human. But we don't wage war with human plans and methods. What is that? Because God says don't do it. So it's kind of important that we know what it is. I actually have three questions that I want to try and answer for you from these verses in this message. Here's the first one. How does one wage war with human plans and methods? Well, just a few verses later, Paul gives us a clue. He says this. He says, we break down every proud argument that keeps people from knowing God. Here's how you wage war according to human plans and human methods. Argue. Share your lofty and prideful opinion whenever you can. Retaliate, manipulate what the other person's saying. Try to twist their argument a little bit represent them unfairly, criticize everything that group over there does. Welcome to the 2016 presidential election. I mean, seriously, politics these days particularly can be a lot of waging war according to human plans and human methods. In fact, every time you turn on your television or your computer, that's what your mind is exposed to. Several months ago, I was watching a news program and they had a guest on there who went on a rant about religions. 
but he didn't do a theological comparison of the Quran to the Bible. No, no, he took the shallow road. And he made a blanket statement that anybody who takes their religion seriously is an extremist. He went on to say that anyone who believes that the Bible is inspired and without error is just as bad as the guy who killed 50 people in that Orlando nightclub. That particularly if you take what the Bible says seriously about sexual morality, that you're just like the guy who pulled the trigger. His one bit of reasoning for this, his one argument or shred of evidence, was Westboro Baptist Church. Now, I don't know if you know what Westboro Baptist Church is or not, but that's the church that protests at homosexual funerals. They hold up obscene and offensive signs. Never once did this guest mention that Westboro Baptist Church has about 60 people who attend, two-thirds of which are family members of the Reverend Fred Phelps, the senior pastor. In other words, we're literally talking about one family here And this guy lumps all other Christians who believe the Bible in with this one family. Now, as somebody who believes that the Bible is inspired and without error, but at the same time despises what Westboro Baptist Church preaches and does, I didn't think that was a fair argument at all. But that's how you wage war according to human plans and human methods. Let's twist what they're saying. Let's represent that group unfairly. Let's be critical of every single thing that they do. God says, as a follower of Christ, we don't behave that way. In fact, listen to what he says in the next verse. He says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They're not of human nature. But we have divine power to destroy strongholds. Here's the second question I want to ask you today. What are strongholds? Now, a stronghold is a fortress or a fortified building that an enemy has become so entrenched in that it's difficult to get them out. But notice the context of what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about mental strongholds. We're going to see in just a few verses, he's talking about our thought life. And so there are two different kinds of mental strongholds. The first one is a worldview. Darwinism, communism, hedonism, humanism... Materialism, relativism, secularism, all of those isms are examples of worldviews that color what people believe to be true. They interpret the world through that lens. And many of those isms are set up in our culture against the knowledge of God. But there's another kind of mental stronghold, and that's a personal mental stronghold. And this is what some of us here today have. You have a stronghold in your mind of fear. That's just where your thoughts go. Fear, anxiety. You have a mental stronghold of pleasing other people. Paralyzes you when you're making a decision because you're just worried, well, what are they going to think about that? And it's become a stronghold. Some of you have a mental stronghold of guilt or shame in your life or lust or fantasies. You have thoughts that have become so ingrained in how you think that it's like a stronghold has been set up in your mind. Years ago, I heard a pastor use an analogy that has always stuck with me. He used the analogy of water rolling down a hill to explain how ingrained our thoughts can become. Ever seen water rolling down a hill? I mean, at first, even if it's just a little trickle, you think, oh, that's no big deal. 
I mean, that's, that's not going to leave a permanent effect. But if that trickle continues for days, months, or years, pretty soon there's a permanent groove formed in the side of that hill. In the same way, some people think, you know, it's, it's no big deal for me to look at a little bit of pornography. It's not going to do any harm. It's not hurting anyone else. But a little trickle here and a little trickle there and pretty soon you have a permanent groove formed on the cortex of your brain. Researchers have shown this to be true. Scientists have actually found that your brain begins to rewire itself as you view pornography to the point where real intimacy no longer does it and future marital connection is threatened or diminished. And it's not just pornography. Critical thought here, negative thought over there, discontented thought thrown in, and pretty soon you have a groove formed on the cortex of your brain. When I was growing up as a kid, I was deathly afraid of mice. My mom was really afraid of mice, so maybe it got passed down to me somehow. I also had some experiences as a kid that, at least to me, felt traumatic with mice. And so all of that led me to have this thought ingrained in my mind that I should be afraid of a mouse. Fast forward to a couple years ago. We were coming home from something, and as we pulled into our driveway, my wife said to me, you know, I think there's a bird building a nest in the back of our mailbox. I said, that's kind of cool. So I said to my two oldest sons, you guys want to go see a bird nest? And so I went down to our mailbox, I opened it up, and the plan was to kind of poke the nest to make sure there was no baby birds in there. But right before I poked it, I remember thinking, that's not a bird nest. And so right as I thought this, a mouse came around the corner of the nest and started running towards my face, which was thick in the mailbox like this. And I know it was a three-inch mouse. I mean, I know that. But it looked like a lion rumbling down that mailbox towards my face. And so I yelled out, look out, and jumped out of the way. But my son, Micah, who was six years old at the time, he was too slow. I probably should have grabbed him and pulled him out of the way, but I'm telling you, it was every man for himself in that moment, okay? <laughs> he was on his own, and he was slow. And so the mouse jumped out of the mailbox onto Micah's eye. And then it jumped off his eye onto the ground and scurried away. I had always told my wife, I'm not going to tell the kids that I'm afraid of mice because I don't want them to be a pansy about this like I am. I think all of that was lost in that moment. <laughs> Fairly certain a permanent groove was formed. But this is how it works. Maybe you had a fear passed down to you from your parents. Or maybe you witnessed a critical or negative spirit growing up. And it just kind of formed on your mind. Or maybe you had some experiences as a kid. You were abused. Or your self-image was damaged in some way. And grooves got formed. And now you're an adult and you're going, I don't want to be anxious about that anymore. I don't want those sexual images on the hard drive of my brain any longer. What can I do? Well, look at what Paul writes in the very next verse because here's the answer to the question. He says, take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. To take something captive means to bind it or to put it under control. That's what some of you need to do with your thoughts. 
You have thoughts that are running wild right now. Discontent thoughts, negative thoughts, angry thoughts, lustful thoughts, guilty thoughts, people-pleasing thoughts, and they're just running wild. You need to bind them. You need to take them captive and make them obedient to Christ. But that leads to the third question I want to ask, which is this, how? How do you take every thought captive? My answer to this might surprise you a little bit, so just hang with me. Meditation. When the Bible uses the word meditate, what it means is to think about or ponder something over and over again. In the Old Testament, which was originally written in Hebrew, the Hebrew word for meditate carries with it this picture of a cow chewing its cud. It just kind of keeps chewing it over and over again. And so when the Bible says to meditate on something, what it means is take a verse, take a chapter, and chew on it. Think about it. Ask God, God, what are you trying to say to me from this? But like with many words, the word meditation has had its meaning changed over the years. And so when I say to you meditate, you don't think of reading a verse from the Bible and chewing on it or thinking about it. You think of sitting cross-legged, palms to the sky, eyes closed, humming, and emptying your mind. But the problem is when the Bible says meditate, it doesn't mean empty your mind. It means to fill your mind. Exact opposite. Look at what it says in Colossians chapter 3. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let me ask you, does the word of Christ, does the word of God, does it dwell in you richly? Are you the kind of person who says, you know, I read the Bible on a fairly regular basis. I think about it. I ask God, what are you trying to say to me through this? I've even memorized a few verses. It dwells in me richly. Or are you the kind of person who says, you know, I, growing up I went to Sunday school or confirmation and, you know, I learned a few verses back then, but it, it's, it's all kind of vague to me now. The Bible actually links your success in life with meditating on the word of God. Look at a few of these verses with me. Joshua 1.8 says, This book of the law, so it's talking about the Bible, the word of God here. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, for then you'll be prosperous and have good success. You want to be prosperous and have good success in God's eyes at least? got to read the Bible. you got to meditate on it. you got to think about it. Psalm 1 says this. His delight, it's talking about a person here. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. What a great picture. A tree planted by a stream is receiving nutrients on a daily basis. It's growing that's what a spiritually growing person has. They have nutrients from God's word on a daily basis. He says it yields fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. You want to prosper. You want to produce good fruit with your life. You want to be the kind of person that when the heat comes, you don't wither. He says you got to read the Bible. You gotta think about it, you gotta apply it, you gotta get it deep down inside of you. That is how you win the mind game. But see, here's my problem. My mind doesn't always mind me. My thoughts can kind of float away. I'll try to pray and my thoughts will float away. 
I mean, there are times when I will sit down and pray and I will be like, oh, I'm weak. God, you're strong. You know who else is strong? Adrian Peterson. I'll tell you what, God. If Adrian Peterson's sitting there in the second round of my fantasy football draft, I'm snatching him up. And I'm going, where did that thought come from? That wasn't what I was meaning to say or to think about. Ever had something like that? Where you have thoughts pop into your mind and you just kind of go, I don't even know where that came from. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but my father-in-law has been sober for the last three and a half years. And his road to recovery is one that illustrates this battle of the mind really well. See, Greg told me that when he was drinking, he would have this thought. I'm going to text my kids and just tell them I miss them and I love them. But then after he would have that thought, another thought would come into his mind. And that thought would say, how dare you? You're going to text your kids and tell them you miss them? I mean, it's your fault you don't see them. It's your drinking. It's your behavior. That's why you don't see them. And you have the audacity to text them and tell them that? And that thought would send him into guilt and into shame and into more drinking. And he would never send the text message. He was listening to himself instead of preaching to himself. But then three years ago, Greg found a power to stay sober and to begin the win the mind game. And it's the same power that rose Christ from the dead. He accepted the gospel, which is the message that Jesus Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Not after we cleaned up our life on our own, but while we were still sinners. And that through faith in Christ, we can be righteous in God's sight. And then he began to flood his mind with God's word. He began to listen to sermons on the way to work and on the way home. He began to read books by authors like Henry Cloud. He began to read the Bible and memorize verses and ask God, God, what are you trying to say to me through this? He filled his mind with truth and he began to win the mind game. Now, does he still have toxic thoughts that come in from time to time? Absolutely, we all do. But these days, whenever he has a thought like this, you're worthless. He imagines himself taking that thought captive. And maybe that's what you need to do. You need to actually envision taking that thought, putting it in a jail cell, shutting the door and locking it. Take that thought captive and then he will come right back and he will use God's word as a weapon. And he will recite truth. And he will say something like, I'm not worthless. I am a precious child of God. And my worth in life doesn't come based on what I did, but based on what Jesus Christ did for me. Whenever he has a thought like, it's all your fault, he will come right back at that with the truth of God's word. And he will say, you know what? It is a lot my fault. I need to take responsibility. But Jesus Christ died to take away my guilt and my shame and to set me free. He uses God's word as a weapon. Look what it says in Ephesians chapter 6. Put on the belt of truth. That's what you need. Some of us listen to lies in our mind on a daily basis. you got to put on the belt of truth. You will need faith as your shield. And then he says, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Friends, the Bible is a weapon. It's not a book that sits on your shelf collecting dust. It's not something you flip through every now and then when you finally hit a low point in life. It is a weapon for you to use on a daily basis. Here's what I want you to do this week. When you have a moment and you have a thought 
that says, you know what, I'm so bad and I've done so many bad things, I don't think God would ever want a relationship with me. You fire right back with Romans chapter 5. That Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Not after we had cleaned up our life. And that through faith in Christ, we can be righteous in God's sight. This week, when you have a thought that says, I hate my body. Can't stand the way I look. You fire right back with Psalm 139. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God knit me together in my mother's womb. And I am fearfully and I am wonderfully made. When you have a thought this week that says, I'm unlovable. And some of us think that at times. I'm just unlovable. You come back with what God says about you in Isaiah 43. You are precious and honored in my sight because I love you. And when you feel like something's impossible, like your marriage is impossible, you fire right back with Luke 137. Nothing is impossible for God. Here's what I want to ask you to do this week. Think about your thinking. Become aware of your thoughts. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. We're going to do this by using God's word as a weapon. We don't wage war with human plans and human methods. We destroy mental strongholds when we use God's word as a weapon. In fact, as you leave today, you're going to be handed a little card. And it looks like this. And there are four Bible verses on here for you. And there are four situations or thoughts that you might have. Afraid, anxious, helpless, despair. And when you have one of those thoughts this week, I want to encourage you to put this card on your dashboard, by your computer. And when you have those thoughts, I want you to go right to the truth of God's word. Memorize these verses. Start to preach truth to yourself. By the way, you can teach this to your kids. Wouldn't it be something if our kids knew how to win the mind game and knew that they didn't have to just listen to themselves all the time and believe the lies that they hear in their head, but they could preach to themselves the truth of God? Friends, you gotta take every thought captive. You gotta make it obedient to Christ. You gotta stop listening to yourself and you gotta preach to yourself. In fact, one of the things that I'm always preaching to myself is that Christ died for my sins. I always come back to that truth. And so today, to celebrate that truth, we're going to celebrate or receive communion with one another. So at this time, I want to invite the communion servers down front to begin passing out the elements. If you're at a campus where it's at the end of your row, go ahead and pass that down at this time. You know, on the night before Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it in front of his disciples. And he said, this is my body which has been broken for you, eat this in remembrance of me. He then took a cup and he raised it up and he said, this is my blood, which is about to be shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. And so we do. We eat and we drink to remind ourselves of the truth that Jesus Christ died for our sins. And it's through faith in him that we can have eternal life. You don't have to be a member of our church to participate in communion, but the Bible says you do have to be a follower of Christ. And so if that's not you, you can just go ahead and let it pass. There's no shame in that whatsoever. You have to peel it back once to get to the, ju or to the bread, twice to get to the juice. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Don't just rip into it right away. Hold it in your hand for just a moment and close your eyes and spend a moment praying. And here's the question I want to invite you to ask yourself. God, what are the thoughts that I need to take captive? 
What are the thoughts in my life that I need to take captive? Angry thoughts? Discontent thoughts? Negative thoughts? Lustful thoughts? People-pleasing thoughts? Doubting thoughts? But what are the thoughts, God, that I need to begin to take captive? And then remind yourself of what Christ did on the cross for you. Remind yourself of that truth. As all this is going on, the band's going to be playing quietly behind us, and then we're going to sing a final song together.